Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the eyes of those striving for a better world. This is the second episode of our education series, which features high school teacher Lisa Mallory. Lisa is from Alberta, Canada, and a recent graduate of our Master of Studies in Social Innovation, a course delivered by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. Through her teaching experiences and her research for the Masters, Lisa found that students were struggling to identify and articulate their own interpretations of Canada's Indigenous histories. I'm Dr Michelle Favre, Head of Knowledge Transfer at the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. And I'm Mark Andrews, the Digital Learning Programme Manager at Cambridge Judge Business School. Together we're uncovering the challenges educators face and through conversation we're seeking out the interesting answers and approaches they're using to solve these difficulties. We chatted to Lisa and asked her what kind of changes she would make based on her research for her dissertation. I think I left this with more questions than answers and so to me I feel like I learned a lot of what not to do and how not to teach this but I don't have a solution as to what the alternative looks like and that's something that I'm excited to do is to maybe start experimenting and exploring with uh, a few different methods maybe and hopefully doing a little bit more research about what what effective teaching for reconciliation really does look like and how do we engage with these difficult emotions in the classroom to really move forward in the reconciliation process. There might be teachers who are listening to this podcast. What advice would you have for them? So I think that one of the big things that I started exploring or experimenting with in my own classroom and the later stages of my research as I was going through what my student interviewees had said, I was then going back to my classroom and saying, okay, can I tweak what I'm doing? One of the biggest things that I found was explicitly talking about how students' identity impacts their views uh, started being something that was working really well, but taking it down to things that we could all relate to. And so what that ended up being was talking about gender. So in Canada, a couple of years ago, uh, we had a very high profile criminal case where a popular personality, I think he had a podcast or a TV show or something, John Gomeshi, was accused of rape. And it was this huge, huge, um, very highly publicized trial in Canada. Um, I think ultimately he was found not guilty. But we ended up doing an inquiry project in my class where students, we looked at the presumption of innocence in the Canadian legal system, kind of what the foundations of those ideas were, and then how did we feel that that was beneficial or not to looking at cases of rape and sexual assault. And so the students went out and they looked a little bit into this case and got different information about it. And then we brought it back, talked about what had happened, talked about some of the criticisms of Canada's legal system of how we treat uh, rape cases and sexual assault. But then the big thing was coming to the end. How do you feel? I would very actively say, okay, like students in here, if in a sexual assault case, who feels that they would be more likely to be someone who was accused of rape versus being someone who was raped. And of course, all of my male students put up their hand. I feel that I would be more likely to be accused. And so, okay, how does that make you think about the presumption of innocence? When you look at this Django Meshi trial, 
do you think it was well done? Why or why not? And pretty much all of my male students said, yes, we have to uphold the, um, the presumption of innocence. Then we shifted that. Okay. Who in here feels like they might be more likely to be a victim of a sexual assault or a rape? Given what happened in this highly publicized trial, how would that impact how you would feel about your chances in the justice system? How does that shift maybe how you would see this trial, how we do this? And my how likely students, you are to actually report the incident. Exactly. Yeah. And my female students started talking about that. And what was really interesting was that we never came to a point where we agreed, but everyone understood where everyone was coming from and really how our gendered identities were impacting the way that we viewed this. And so then I don't think that any of the students in that case felt that the male students who were saying these things about the importance of believing the accused, that they were bad people who were anti-feminist or whatever, that they were coming from their own experience. And in the same way that I think my male students also very much were looking at sort of this case and then their female counterparts. After we did this exercise, then we went back into some really um, highly publicized criminal cases that dealt with indigenous victims. And so we looked, for example, um, last year I believe it was, uh, there was a really big trial where Gerald Stanley was charged with the murder of Colton Bushy. So Gerald Stanley was a middle-aged white farmer. Uh, Colton Bushy was a teenage indigenous person who had gone on, I think, to try to steal a truck off of the farm. Um, Gerald Stanley shot him, and it was this big, huge racially charged case where none of the jurors were indigenous. Ultimately, Gerald Stanley ended up getting um, off, and it was a really, really big case in Canada. So we had this conversation where we did the same thing with what we'd done with the Gian Gomeshi trial. Okay, what happened? Go out, find the information. Now let's come back. What do you think? Why? What are the assumptions that you have coming under this? Why do you think an Indigenous person would view the fact that the that there weren't any Indigenous people on the jury as being unfair. And I think that by starting this whole process with several days of talking about gender identity, where we had sort of members of every group in the classroom having that conversation, gave us then an opportunity to go on and then to look at something where none of my students are Indigenous, but when we've kind of done the work of going back and talking with people of another group, understanding and not blaming kids either for the assumptions that they hold and how their identity shapes their views, but making them aware of how their identity shapes their So this views. all goes back to the safe kind of space concept within mm -hmm. the classroom, isn't it, where the people feel they can share their views? And I think part of it is just allowing students to express a dissenting view, but by always yeah. feeling that back to, well, why do you feel that? Like, what are your experiences? And then we can talk about, I think, the idea of there being multiple truths that are shaped by experience and that are shaped by our cultures, and then I can disagree with the universality of your experience. Maybe what you've experienced isn't reflective of a greater truth, and I think that that's a conversation that we can have, but I can also recognize that the life that you've led and the experiences that you've had would lead you to believe that 
And I think that that brings everyone down to a position where we can have a lot more constructive conversations and people can be very open about what their views are. And it brings it back to more of a place of questioning where students are actively going, okay, but why? Why do you think that? Do you think someone else would believe something else and why? So the, the, the session that you, you taught sounds very exciting and sounds very challenging. So what do you think are some of the barriers to actually teachers delivering this in a more systemic level? Mm -hmm. So I think a few things. One is teachers, I think that we want to be confident about what we're talking about and teaching. But really, when we're coming down to perspectives, you come in as a teacher with a perspective and that it can also, you as a teacher and as a Canadian are also kind of going through your whole own process of discomfort as you're thinking about all of these narratives and how it relates to you. The other thing though is I think that there we do see cases in the news where teachers talk about issues around race and identity and then the way that they present these activities then can lead to being fired or having some sort of complaints or professional um, discipline against them. So a great example I remember seeing in the news a couple of years ago, a teacher was fired for having asked uh, their students to do a pros and cons list of slavery. And I remember reading this and I actually brought it to my students and talked to them about it because that's something that I would have done. That's an assignment that I would have given. Why? Because I think that we need to understand multiple perspectives and we need to understand why things happen. If there weren't any benefits to slavery, slavery wouldn't have happened. And I think the whole point of looking at history is to understand why things happened and how that relates to who we are and how we interact today. I think if you were, for example, like what I'm wearing today, I don't know anything about where my clothes came from, how they were sourced, in what conditions, um, but I know that I didn't pay an exorbitant amount of money for them. And I think that we can look at the awful environmental cost of, say, fashion and the huge um, human cost of fast fashion. I bet you a lot of the pros of slavery look like the pros of our sort of modern capitalist system. If you can't look at the benefits of the past of things that were unjust, how can you make that application to today? But every time I see a headline like that where a teacher gets fired for having those conversations, maybe the problem is how that was done, but it also makes me wonder sometimes after, for example, those bigger conversations around um, identity and looking into some current cases with Indigenous um, justice and things like that, I do wonder, am I going to get a call from a parent? Is a parent going to complain? Have I pushed the envelope too far? And I think that that is something, it's a very real concern. And one of the things that I saw in my research was that teachers teach Indigenous content completely differently from how they teach everything else in social studies everything else in social studies. We push out tons of primary and secondary source documents. We look at things from multiple perspectives, allow students to see how things happened, why things happened, perspectives that existed at the time, ways that we interpret past events today. But then when it came to Indigenous content, the teacher said, here is what happened. This is, um, this is how we're going to move forward. And there's no sort of room for building that knowledge with the students. So you're saying that part of that comes from a fear that teachers have of 
of stepping out of line or crossing mm -hmm. the line, saying something that could be construed as inappropriate. Mm. I think that. that that's a big part of it. And I think also that we just have a lack of resources that show a number of different perspectives. And I think also that a lot of teachers, I can speak for myself, I really don't know that much about Indigenous history and perspectives. And like, we as teachers need to learn so much to be able to bring those multiple perspectives. So in university, I took a lot of classes on European history um, or Canadian history, but from more of a um, like Eurocentric lens. So one of the recommendations in your in your thesis is that there's there's a need for more investment in teacher training and support for teachers who are going to be delivering this content. Mm -hmm. And so so what I'm hearing from your description is that actually what would be important would be for teachers to address their own positionality in a safe space aside from their students, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then to be able to bring that back to the classroom and to do. But with the resources like from multiple perspectives, so they can actually manage yeah. that discourse with the students. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also because most teachers, I don't know the exact statistics, but most teachers are not Indigenous. And so I think there's also a huge push right now, and there's been a lot of funding put into it um, to really bring in true Indigenous voices into the classroom through different. Um, speakers or programs, I think that there is a lot of movement happening where teachers aren't going to be expected to be the sole source of knowledge surrounding this and that I think one of our big sort of challenges as teachers or responsibilities now is to go out and to find those resources and to find those voices and to be able to bring speakers into our schools or to um, just engage more meaningfully and I think that what I'm seeing with myself is I think I taught so much of this content so conservatively because I was worried about teaching it wrong and not doing enough and what I saw was that well actually doing it in this way isn't engaging mm -hmm. it's doing the opposite so you're kind of messing up anyway so try something else and if you mess up in a different way okay but it's probably not going to be that much worse than what you're doing right now and kind of giving myself the freedom to maybe fall a little bit, but knowing that what I'm doing right now isn't successful anyway. I wanted to come back to this question of polarizing the, the narrative and the argument around this is good, this is bad, mm -hmm. this is very black and white, and that it, it feels from what you're saying like that's the tendency when you have this fear of stepping out of line because the gray area is so big, mm -hmm. what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, that your tendency is to just polarize the debate, that side good, that side bad, and but actually this is one of the things which the, the students were fed up with. Yeah. Essentially, they didn't want to hear it anymore. It's an oversimplification of the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And maybe your students um, in the study were also from Alberta, um, and so they'd actually heard it before because Alberta had previously had a curriculum around indigenous narratives before some of the other regions, mm -hmm. is that correct? Yeah, so I think right now, I don't know what's happening as much in other provinces, so much as just the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has recommended that, all or not recommended, but called for all provinces to embed history around residential schools and the 60s scoop and Canada's relationship with its indigenous people into 
all levels of the curriculum in an age-appropriate way. And so right now, I think different provinces are at different stages of putting together a curriculum that matches that. And we're seeing it not only in social studies, now this is being embedded across all subjects where we're looking at Indigenous ways of knowing in math and in science and in language and embedding that not just in social studies but all the way across the curriculum. In Alberta we have been working on a new curriculum but we also just elected a new provincial government and so we'll see if that curriculum ends up getting um, implemented or if they're going to go back and do some modifications. But one thing I want to talk about, just coming back to what you were saying about that sort of polarized view of Indigenous people, that's one thing that the students in the study just kept saying. Indigenous people were always portrayed as being either helpless victims of circumstance in every single situation, or sort of a perfect group of people with this collectivist, environmental worldview, um, consensus-based, everything was perfect. And the students in the study just kept saying, People aren't like that. No one's like that. But we're being presented this information in this same way all the time. I want to know more. I want to know about problems that Indigenous societies had before contact because I'm sure they existed. They existed everywhere else in the world. Why is this only here? And when I heard that from the students in the study, I started thinking back on how I do teach it and what are the implicit messages of the way that I teach this content. And that is absolutely the implicit messaging that I didn't mean to do. But also coming back to what you were saying, you think like, okay, but how can I teach this in a way that sort of, it's discomforting. And especially I think as a, as a white woman, like what am I allowed or not allowed to say about mm -hmm. indigenous people and indigenous cultures and the relationship between Canada and indigenous people? And one thing that I read recently, I read um, a feminist manifesto in 15 suggestions by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And her 14th suggestion was that in teaching someone about oppression, be careful not to turn the oppressed into saints. And it resonated with me so much because what she was saying was that you don't need to be perfect to have your rights respected and to be able to be treated with dignity. So don't teach people that you know any oppressed group is a perfect group of people. No one's a perfect group of people. People deserve to be treated well because they are people. And that was such a sort of piece of information that resonated with me to go like, okay, I can recognize flaws and problems. That's not undermining anything around saying, you know, awful things happen, awful things continue to happen, and we're navigating very much what this means moving forward in the relationship between non-Indigenous and Indigenous Canadians. As we close, is there, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Any kind of thoughts, challenges? Yeah, so I think uh, the biggest thing for teachers who are looking at um, embedding sort of Indigenous history and perspectives and knowledge into any curriculum I think the biggest thing is knowing that you should expect discomfort from yourself as a teacher and also from your students and that that's okay. It's part of the process. That naming that discomfort and actively helping students work through it is essential. It's there and if we don't address it, it becomes toxic. What exactly addressing it looks like I think is an area for future research and really understanding at what point does that discomfort 
become a catalyst for learning and at what point does it make students shut down and disengage. I don't think we really understand that yet and that there's a lot of work to be done around how we do that. But again, for right now for teachers, expect discomfort, it's okay. I think the other thing too, then comes back to your discomfort as a teacher teaching this. Um, it's, I think, going to be messy, but again, you don't need to romanticize the people that you're talking about. I think that you can help students actively consider their identity and their positions and how that impacts the way that they view the world. And when looking at things like embedding Indigenous perspectives into curriculum, maybe you don't come at that from looking at specifically Indigenous viewpoints. Maybe you bring it back to something that students can relate to more directly. For example, what I did with looking more at gender um, and how gender shapes our um, perspectives on different issues. And I think just that as teachers in Canada embarking in this reconciliation journey, we do have a responsibility. And I think also that saying, I don't know enough, can't really be an excuse. And I know I've been um, guilty of that in the past. I think that we're finding lots of different resources and that really we're at a point where we need to be actively engaging and actively exploring and learning more and talking about the challenges that we see very openly so that we understand the framework that we're working in and what we'll need to do to be able to deliver these new curriculums more effectively. That was Lisa Mallory talking about her discoveries for her research dissertation, The Necessary Discomfort of Postcolonial Narratives in the Social Studies Classroom. You can read a summary of Lisa's research by searching for the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn.